from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. By the way, if you haven't gotten your Mommy Issues merch, that's all still available. The link is in the notes. Want to give my usual thank yous to my patrons. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be next or get early access to the podcasts. Also, Spotify has kind of cut some of our us creators' um, our income that we make from them in half. So any little bit that you might want to give, again, super appreciated. So just keep it in mind. So today's podcast was actually not voted for by my patrons, but they are a benevolent bunch of benefactors. Bless them, so patient with me. So we are going to look at the very famous case of the Menendez brothers. This is an old one, but again, I thought I'd take a fresh look at everything and really dive in to see if we can get any additional clarity. And while I would have loved to have told you about every small detail of the entire life stories, the whole case, you know, minute by minute of these brothers, just time-wise, it's not feasible. So I've hit the highlights and focused more on the abuse that they spoke about as this is a more psychology-focused podcast. Okay, now I want to preface this with some information. When the boys were on trial, I was a young teen, and I knew what they had been accused of. The media very much made it seem pretty black and white. They murdered their parents for money and that the abuse was most likely all lies. I myself didn't get to watch the trial because I was too young to really be having one, but I already had a job already in full-time school. So I trusted what the media portrayed and I believed it. Oh, how we know what a joke the mainstream media is now. So the more I dove down into this rabbit hole, the more pissed off I became, quite honestly. But more on this later. So jumping right in, Joseph Lyle Menendez, who goes by Lyle, was born on January 7th, 1968 in New York City. His younger brother, Eric Galen Menendez, was born on November 27th, 1970, in Blackwood, New Jersey. Their parents were Jose Enrique Menendez and Mary Louise, or Kitty, Anderson. This is already going to be a long one, so I'm going to skip the history for this one. You know, it was the late 60s and 1970. We all know what was going on during the whole hippie sexual revolution and free love and Manson stuff, right? So moving on. Jose, their father, was born in Havana, Cuba in 1944. 
Now, all of the things going on in Cuba between when Jose was born up to the Bay of Pigs is the subject of a separate history podcast. But suffice to say that Jose was born into a bit of privilege, pretty upper middle class to be sure. Sources said that his father was a well-known soccer player or football for the rest of the world. And he also owned an accounting firm. His mother was apparently quite the accomplished swimmer and had even been elected to the Cuban Sports Hall of Fame. The parents had two daughters and Jose. From information coming from Jose's older sister, Marta, when Jose was five years old, their father would go on long trips, leaving their mother very lonely. Those were her words. Maria would then take Jose into her bed and make him do sexual things to her. Marta also said that Jose was a spoiled and unruly child, but she recalled also witnessing for herself that her mother had molested Jose. With later testimony from Lyle, it seems pretty certain that his father also sexually abused him. Marta continues to say that she believes the sexual abuse Jose had suffered actually never stopped after he started school. Jose, as well as his parents and sisters, belonged to a country club in Havana, and in 1954, when Jose was about 10 years old, a source said, and it was reported that he set fire to the country club floor during a Christmas party that they all attended. When Jose was 16 years old, the Cuban Revolution had begun, and he moved to the United States, Pennsylvania to be exact. You see, Fidel Castro had overthrown the ruling government and seized the property of the wealthy and upper middle class. Jose left the country flying with his sister's fiance. In high school, it was said that Jose was a high achiever and won an athletic scholarship, but he could not afford to attend an Ivy League college, which was his dream, so he enrolled at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. It was there where he met his future wife, Mary Louise Anderson, nicknamed Kitty to those who knew her. According to IMDb, Kitty was born to a middle-class family in suburban Chicago, where her father owned an air conditioning business. Her home life was very unhappy, with a cruel, abusive father and a despondent, battered mother. While Kitty was still a child, her father abandoned the family to move in with a mistress. Embittered, she turned into a moody and depressed child and had few friends. Eventually, she cut off all contact with her father, whom she came to despise. A beauty queen in younger years, she went on to college where she met Jose, as we already know. And while Jose was studying, sources said that he washed dishes in a Manhattan restaurant. Jose and Kitty married in 1964. Both of their families were against the marriage because... Well, Jose was not a natural-born citizen of the U.S., and Kitty's parents had been divorced. Scandalous. So allegedly, they eloped. But after Jose graduated, he passed the CPA exam and became a successful businessman at 21 years old. He had just moved himself and his bride to New York City. In all of his workplaces, he was credited with being a highly intelligent and diligent worker, 
but was widely disliked as arrogant and rude to co-workers and abrasive to subordinates. It was reported that Jose was well known for humiliating and belittling co-workers, and he especially enjoyed firing people. And as for Kitty, in their early kind of married life, she was an elementary school teacher. So once they settled in New York, Lyle was born again, 1968. It was at this point that Kitty quit working to become a full-time mother and homemaker. After a short period of time, the family moved to the Hopewell Township area in New Jersey. Eric was then born in 1970. And as Jose climbed up the corporate ladder, outwardly, it appeared that their life looked idyllic, at least on the surface. Intelligent, attractive, charming in public, Kitty appeared to be the ideal wife and mother. Jose did work hard. He climbed the ladder and became quite successful and quite wealthy. But you know, it didn't take long for the family cracks to appear. Now, about half of this background information comes from the testimony and interviews with Marta Menendez, again, the big sister of Jose, and as well as the brothers. I find it important to point out that Marta telling these stories about Lyle and Eric's childhood as she observed it didn't benefit her in any way. So usually when people are testifying or, you know, they're corroborating criminals' testimony, if they have nothing to benefit from it, we have a tendency to believe them more, right? She obviously lost her brother that she did love, so I trust her testimony. And she was most cooperative, and she was a good, honest witness. From as soon as the boys could walk and toddle around the house, Jose demanded much from his sons. One such story from Marta's testimony was that Jose would make younger brother Eric hang from a workout bar of sorts at just two years old. He would either take the boys to a gym or he would force them to do this in the home gym. But regardless of where, Marta observed Jose lifting Eric up and having him hook his tiny little hands around that bar. And then he would let go of him, take a step back and just let him hang there no less than four feet from the ground, and visually it looked higher, as there was a picture shown in court. When Eric would begin to tire and start to cry, as toddlers do, Jose would laugh at and mock his tiny son and continue to stand back so the baby knew no one was there to catch him. When Eric's arms would begin to give, he, when he could no longer hold the weight of his own body up, Jose would swoop in, put Eric on the ground, and then laugh at him and call him weak, among other words. And he did so in front of anyone within listening distance. As Marta watched these episodes in horror, she tried to carefully tell her brother that this was dangerous, that one of her own sons had accidentally fallen from a distance and was injured and had to be taken in for an evaluation. This is when a neurosurgeon had told her that falling from anything above the child's own height could result in a skull fracture. You know what Jose did? He laughed at her concern, and Kitty just stood there smiling as well. And when asked why she didn't press these types of issues all of the time at her brother and sister-in-law, she said that you simply didn't question Jose. And if you take a step back, I think we all know how this feels. Now, as far as older brother Lyle's very early childhood, 
It was said that Kitty didn't seem to really appropriately bond with him. She did not hold him, cuddle him, fawn over him, or really even act very maternal with him, unless, of course, it was for a photo opportunity. Lyle was very much left to fend for himself, even when he was a small toddler, though Jose made it pretty plain that Lyle was his son, his firstborn. And again, Marta would try to carefully intervene, but Kitty would tell her, you know, leave Lyle alone. He can fend for himself. And this included even preparing food for the boys. Marta said that she watched both boys, too young to even be worrying about their next meal, climb up on chairs and then onto tables to grab a box of cereal to feed themselves. When Marta would intercede by trying to make the boys a sandwich or help them pour the milk for their cereal, whatever they needed, Kitty would tell her that, again, they could fend for themselves and to just leave them. Marta would begrudgingly back off because she knew her brother and sister-in-law very well. If she pushed too hard, she would not be invited back to the house to sort of keep an eye on her nephews. Regarding Jose's relationship with his sons, it was observed regularly that, with Eric, he would humiliate the small boy in front of whoever was in the room and Eric would cry due to this humiliation. Lyle's reaction to being humiliated by his own father was to become a little soldier, as Lyle was far less emotional. Lyle would just look down, and his body would become very stiff. Now, I'm about to get into some rather heavy stuff, including child sexual abuse. So if you don't think you want to hear that part, by all means, skip this one. I'm just throwing it out there. Lyle, starting at between the ages of six to eight years old, began suffering sexual abuse from Jose, his own father. And because of this abuse, it was stated in court that Lyle had an alarmingly high number of physician visits. The medical expert who testified at the trial stated that regarding Lyle's medical history, there were a, quote, significant number of physician visits and records. He was treated for an epigastric hernia at seven years old, no doubt either caused from the physical strain from being forced into excessive physical activity. This type of hernia results from the intestines coming through from between abdominal muscles. Lyle apparently also suffered from a speech articulation disorder, meaning a speech impediment that was most likely aggravated by the stress in the home as he started school and working his way through. It was said that he performed kind of below his school level. He suffered from severe stomach pains in his youth, as well as complaining of intense and frequent headaches. Lyle's first sport was swimming, starting at four years old. Four. His father hired a coach and his mother took him to practices when Jose was working. Eric, too, was brought into it once he was around that age. Now, during the summer, practice was every single day, spring and fall, a few times a week, and during the winter, only slightly less. Lyle stated the swimming wasn't too bad, except he really didn't enjoy it, and Jose was rough with his corrections with Lyle, such as, forcing him to swim lap after lap and pulling him out of the pool by his hair. He also held Lyle's head underwater to, quote, train his lungs to the point that Lyle nearly drowned over and over. 
his instincts, tiny little boy instincts would kick in and he would fight his father to be able to get air. But Jose kept him under until it was nearly too late. These drills lasted until he was around 10 years old. Lyle would beg his mother to not take him or make him go with his father, but his pleading fell on deaf ears. He would be so scared, so nervous, that he stated he began to have these stomach aches and would vomit. He would purposefully hit his head into or like swim into the side of the pool so the coach would take him out for the rest of the practice. Lyle began playing soccer around four or five years old. Lyle did testify that he truly enjoyed soccer and played it until he was around 12 years old. Jose was just as involved with the soccer as he was with the swimming. Jose was known to get frustrated and literally walk out onto the field, remove Lyle to, quote, talk to him, and then make him go back out with the team in front of all of the other kids, the parents, the other teams, and the coaches tolerated it. They knew if they didn't, Jose would just pull Lyle off the team and find another team. But to be sure, Jose didn't allow Lyle to befriend any of his teammates. For an example, if the team lost, the other team members still went out for pizza, but Jose would not allow Lyle to join in. If you lost, you didn't deserve any celebration. Anything positive after a loss was horrifying to Jose. He would grab Lyle by the face, his little cheeks, and force this very close face-to-face proximity and make him maintain this eye contact because losing was most unacceptable and not tolerated. Now, Lyle always had to be achieving, no matter what, and no excuses. The expectations were astronomical as far as food consumption, What and when they ate was also tightly controlled. No eating any sooner than three hours prior to a practice or a game, and specific food had to be consumed, such as no sugar, no dairy, but sometimes lots of dairy. Food restriction was really based on whatever he had recently read in a book with regards to strategy with food. Even fasting was encouraged, I mean really forced, on his young boys. If Lyle was caught eating pastries, which was one of the court examples, Jose would rip the food out of his hand, grab him by the throat, and let him know that that was unacceptable. At 13 years old, Lyle was only playing tennis. He said he started tennis about six years old and was forced to practice around 40 to 45 hours a week, plus full-time school guys. If he lost a tennis match, Lyle was forced to stay on the phone with his father if he hadn't been there, and he would want to go over every single bit of the game and told his son to write down the exact foods he ate that day before, the games, the matches, what have you. Every detail was to be explained, and this often led to an hour, an hour and a half phone calls of just degrading communication. Lyle stated on the stand that Jose considered Eric unimportant, the spare son. You see, to Jose, only the firstborn son mattered. Lyle himself stated he didn't really even bond with Eric much until they were a little bit older children. And because Jose was so hyper fixated on Lyle and the sports, Kitty felt neglected. So she would proceed to tell Lyle how he had ruined her life and 
she would explode into tantrums, exclaiming that she could have become an actress or going into broadcasting and that her pregnancy with him had ruined everything. She told him she never wanted children. She complained about how much time and money was spent on the tennis lessons and whatnot. She would hit him and call him a bastard, would curse at her young children, telling Lyle she wished he had never been born. She'd tell him he was stupid, that she hated him. Pornographic films were made available to the boys by Jose, who would then force the boys to sit and watch with them. Kitty would occasionally view with them as well. The themes were sexual violence, gang rapes, lesbian and gay violent sexual acts, red room films, if you know what I mean. Lyle testified that Jose would take photos of he and Eric, usually their genitalia, if they were in the shower or bathtub. And in case you don't believe me, they put those photos up as evidence in the courtroom that definitely shows those in these photographs. I mean, considering how hard YouTube comes down on me for saying sexual assault, one finds it odd that those photos were allowed. But whatever. Lyle identified two of the CP photos as Eric due to Eric's birthmark. So Jose would talk to Lyle about sex between men, including bonding between men, going into battle or in competition, and the history of how this was normal. Touching and hugging and penetration was, even with straight men, throughout history, done together before battle. He had then six-year-old Lyle see some things in some books, right? He explained to his small son that the Greeks and soldiers in particular would have sex together as a form of bonding for a stronger connection and that this philosophy spilled over into sports and then it spills over into the relationship between Jose and Lyle. He told Lyle that their relationship was so very special and that the bond between the father and the firstborn was, quote, special. The sons should do what the fathers say. Then the sons grow up and become fathers who will carry on the tradition with their own son. Between the ages of six and eight, Jose started sexually abusing Lyle. Okay, if you really need to turn back, now's the time. So it started after sports practices with massages. Then it progressed to shared fondling about two to three times a week. Around seven years old, the sexual abuse became more intense. Jose would put Lyle on his knees and guide his head and force him to orally satisfy his father. Jose also used foreign objects. One example was a toothbrush that he would insert said objects, you know where they went, into Lyle with Vaseline and would, quote, play. He called it play. The toothbrush or other objects were pretty quickly replaced with actual rape. Lyle begged his father not to do this to him, that it hurt that he bled and Jose would tell him that he didn't mean to hurt him, well, that he loved him. It was this rare vocalization of love that Lyle would otherwise never hear that made it especially hard. He told his mother what his father was doing and Kitty told him that he was exaggerating 
and that that was his punishment for doing things wrong, such as losing a game, as an example. Jose told him that bad things would happen to him if he told anyone, so he didn't. The rapes stopped at around eight years old, according to Lyle, who also never told Eric. Now, Lyle did admit in court that, due to this trauma, that he took Eric out into the woods and used a toothbrush on him as a reenactment. Eric would have been four to six years old. As Lyle described this in court, beside himself and crying, Eric became distraught and Lyle quietly and sincerely apologized to Eric in front of the court and Eric really broke down with him. It was most assuredly heartfelt. So around 13 years old, Lyle began to suspect his father was doing the same to Eric and he confronted Jose about it. He told his father to leave Eric alone. Jose told Lyle that Eric was lying at first, but then he said that it would stop and that again, he would kill Lyle if he told anyone. So now we're moving on to Eric. Eric endured his father much the same, though the level of investment was much less, the intensity was the same. There were swim meets. Eric, much like Kyle, did not enjoy the swimming and would be cold and begin to shiver. Jose would say, quote, come on, Eric, I'm going to give you a massage so you can warm up, end quote. Eric, much like a robot, would go along with it. At some point, Eric lost a swim meet and he cried. He was a little boy. Jose instantly became very angry, saying the boy was stupid for losing the meat. Quote, what can I do with this sissy kid who won't stop crying? He said this in front of Eric. Jose would not allow Aunt Marta to console Eric either, just as he had with Lyle. You simply did not go against Jose's wishes, Marta said. Soccer time with Eric was also much the same. Jose would tell Eric, why can't you be like your cousin? And this is one of Marta's sons, right? Why do you have to be so weak and a sissy? Eric would be obviously humiliated, and Kitty herself would lie about her children's accomplishments to showcase this facade of the perfect family. Sources stated that Kitty was obsessed with appearances and status, respectability, high achieving, high status. That was all that mattered. Secrets of the family must remain secret, and she taught her boys this. Not to mention, the boys were nearly completely isolated from their peers, save their cousins, and they felt they could not confide in anyone, always with this aura of perfection. So Eric, as a younger child, was kind of a picky eater. Jose would notice that Eric was pushing his food around his plate, and he would take Eric's plate and show it to everyone around the table, guests included, and ridicule him. And surely Kitty would at least give Jose a stern look, right? No. Kitty would smile at Jose, perfectly fine with this exchange. She never intervened. During the trial, Marta described an incident involving Eric when he was nine years old. Marta had plans to go shopping with Kitty. Marta stated she observed Eric in the kitchen and she went to give him a kiss and discovered he was actually super hot with fever, as she put it, burning with fever. She confronted Kitty in front of Eric, saying, you know, we don't have to go shopping if Eric is sick. Kitty shrugged her off and said that Eric could fend for himself, that he was used to being by himself. 
Kitty didn't even call to check on Eric all day. In fact, it was known that Jose and Kitty left both boys alone all day below the age of 10. Another shopping story, right? So Kitty and Marta went shopping together. The boys were young and running all over as kids do. Marta asked about it because she was worried about them wandering off and Kitty said they're fine. The boys disappeared though and Kitty was called over the loudspeaker to come to this specific place to pick up her children. She told Marta that the boys were located so they could keep shopping. She shopped an additional 45 minutes to an hour. This was not the only time. Another time, Marta herself went to get the boys, so Kitty shopped an additional two hours before coming to get them. Marta stated Kitty and Jose's house was not kept very clean, that there had been animal feces and leftovers and on and on just all over the house. The boys wore old, worn-out clothes, even though Jose had significant means. Piles of clean and piles of dirty clothes were just dumped on the floor and the boys were expected to just get their own clothes from the pile of clean clothes. Hopefully they knew which one was which. If the boys went to intense sports camps, Kitty would just buy them new clothes because again, that facade. She told Marta that she wished the boys had never been born because they had, quote, broken her marriage, that they made her miserable because they separated her from Jose. Jose was all about micromanaging the boys, and he never asked her how she was, and you know. So little Eric stuttered and looked very sad a lot when he was little, according to Marta. He did in some of the childhood photos I've seen. She said that Eric was very shy, nervous and insecure, that he did not trust anyone. And as the boys got older, the sports increased. Less and less time was spent with family, not even on major holidays. During Jose's own father's funeral, the boys were playing sports. They were not allowed to attend due to sports. Practice was more important than big family gatherings, such as, you know, weddings or anything important like that. So regarding Eric's testimony, he stated he was in the sixth grade when Jose first anally raped him, though the sodomy and oral sex was started when he was six. And if you are keeping score, this was the time that he had stopped raping eight-year-old Lyle. So prior to this, the pain Eric expressed had stopped Jose until Eric was again 12. Jose violently raped him. He stated it was very painful. Jose used a piece of wood from Eric's bed to wedge against the door so no one would walk in, though no one dared interrupt what, at the very least, Kitty had to have known what was going on. Jose ordered him to take off his clothes and kneel down over the bed. Jose closed the blinds. Eric leaned over the footboard. Jose had a jar of... Vaseline at the ready. He told his father that the pain was unbearable and begged him to stop, and he screamed that it hurt. But Jose didn't stop, so he shut off. He dissociated. And once the rape was over, he was still crying. Jose had Eric sit on a towel so as to not get semen on the bed, and he told Eric, quote, Next time you scream or yell, I'll beat you so bad, you won't be able to scream and yell again. 
end quote. So unlike the love he gave Lyle during these sessions, Eric didn't even get that. And Jose, quote, made good on his threats. So Eric took a hot, soothing bath and resigned to not scream or yell and to just give in to his father. I remember making that decision. And really, the boys were not allowed to speak to Jose unless he spoke to them. Silence was the greatest power that anyone could achieve, and with silence, you could control anyone. Jose's words. Eric's testimony about Kitty goes as, around the age of 12-ish, he testified that Kitty would ask him to sit on the bed and take down his pants so she could examine his genitals. She would say, quote, let me check you out. He had small blisters on his penis, and she popped them but didn't ask what they were. She continued this behavior until they moved to California. I apologize, even I needed a moment. Jose would hurt Eric with needles, pins, tacks, rope, by sticking them into his thighs and butt, or tying him up. Sometimes he would be giving him oral sex, and other times he tied up his penis with the rope, and Eric stated it hurt very much. He didn't think Kitty was aware of what Jose was doing to him, but it would seem she did, at least on some level. Kitty would have Eric put eye drops in his eyes to mask the red eyes from crying, but she did not ask why he was crying. Eric's medical records are interesting. They were examined, and as it turned out, he had an injury to the throat area in 1977, so Eric would have been seven years old. The injury was described as, quote, soft palate posterior pharynx uvula injury, end quote. So that is the hanging down thing in the back of your mouth and your throat and so on. So this would be inflicted during child sexual abuse via oral copulation. Now, as a teenager, Lyle had many female companions and his parents did not approve. Imagine, they actually took his credit cards away. He would steal them back and buy stuff anyway. So Lyle became a disappointment in their eyes. Eric was a disappointment as well, and he truly was struggling to find his way. But both boys did not talk about any of it, none of the abuse. I mean, they really thought their dad would kill them. Jose was actually accusing Eric of being gay when Eric was a teenager. Eric has maintained that he was not gay and that he just didn't talk about girls in front of his father, which was probably quite smart. I find it important to also let you know that Jose carried on an eight-year affair with a woman in New York. Kitty was aware of this affair. He was also having an affair with a woman in L.A., the woman in New York and Kitty were not aware of her, though, and also a madam in L.A. was supplying Jose with sex workers, and some of this was during the time that he was raping his sons as well, so let that sink in, that he took a chance of giving his sons STDs, and perhaps that might explain the odd blisters Eric had, you know? So Jose who also worked in the music industry, was managing the 80s boy group Menudo, which most of you won't know who that is, and honestly, I don't really remember, but they are kind of like NSYNC, but Latino, and in the 80s. Ricky Martin was in the group, maybe that helps. So in 1983 or 4, 
the then 14-year-old Roy Rossello, a former member of the boy band Menudo, alleged that Jose Menendez drugged and sexually assaulted him during a visit to the Menendez home in New Jersey. In a clip from a Today Show segment, Rossello pointed to a photo of Jose during the clip and said, quote, that's the man here that raped me. That's the pedophile, end quote. As Lyle and Eric grew into their older teens, Lyle also came to have a fierce temper, according to his bio on IMDb. Quote, in high school, his father ordered him to find a sport at which to excel, one that didn't involve being on a team. Lyle chose tennis and was the highest ranked member of the tennis squad. His grades were only average, however, which caused further tension at home. After graduating high school, he was rejected by Princeton University and attended a local community college. He fell in love with a girl and wanted to open a restaurant, but his parents disapproved, and their interfering ended the romance, engendering enormous resentment in Lyle. He was accepted into Princeton on his second try, but shortly afterwards was suspended for plagiarism. He returned a year later and fell in love with a model... But, again, his parents put an end to his romance. Lyle disliked school and only went through the motions, and his low grades led to academic disciplinary action. End quote. They said it better than I could, really. So Eric found solace from Lyle, whom he adored and bragged to his friends about. Eric's grades were only slightly above average, and he didn't have many friends. Upon graduating from high school, Eric had wanted to attend college out of state, but, you see, Lyle's troubles at Princeton caused his parents to overrule it. And keep in mind, Jose was still sexually assaulting Eric, right? So that never stopped. Ever. Jose was also the head of RCA Records at this time. So, in December of 1988, Eric wrote a letter to his cousin, Andy Cano, which is Marta's son, one of her sons. The letter detailed the abuse. A portion of the letter reads, quote, It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I can't explain it. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen, and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know Dad like I do. He's crazy! Exclamation point. He warned me a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. Am I a serious wimpus? I don't know. I'll make it through this. I can handle it, Andy. I need to stop thinking about it. End quote. The letter was later found in Andy's effects long after the trial after Andy passed away from a drug overdose in 2003. So just days before the murders, Eric told Lyle that their dad had been molesting and raping him since his childhood and he wanted it to stop. Lyle suspected, but had trusted his father when he had told him so many years ago that he would not touch Eric anymore. Eric was actively seeking out Lyle's help in some kind of action to make it stop. The molestation had continued from six years old until the brothers murdered their parents. It goes without saying that Lyle became blind with rage. So, one of them, I believe Eric, had used a friend's identification to obtain a gun in another state, if memory serves. On the evening of August 20th, 1989, both boys went into the den where Jose and Kitty were watching TV. Both boys had shotguns, 
raised them, and shot their parents multiple times. Jose was shot six times, including the fatal shot in the back of his head. Kitty was shot ten times in total. Before the fatal shot to her cheek, she had fallen to the floor, slowly crawling and crying. Lyle then ran to his car to reload before firing the fatal shot to her face. If you are interested in seeing the crime scene photos, they are but a Google search away. So immediately after the killings, both brothers remained in the house, expecting the police to respond due to the noise of the shotguns. And when the police arrived, they stated that they had just gotten home from watching a Batman movie and found their parents. After the parents were murdered, both boys truly opened up and spent more time with the family. Marta was able to actually bond with them, she said. And we all know that in the months after they murdered their parents, they began to spend heaps of money on extravagant items and getaways. At one point, they attended a New York Knicks basketball game, which became immortalized when they appeared courtside in the background of a Mark Jackson trading card, and I happen to know someone who owns one of those cards. And we all know that eventually, the authorities sussed out that it was them, and they were eventually arrested, and they confessed, and then the trial began. First trial resulted in a hung jury. The second one, the judge did not admit most of the abuse allegation information, and then they were found guilty. They are still in prison to this day. Whew. So, now before I get into the psychology of these people, I encourage any of you interested in a bit more information to check out the links down in the show notes. I've left links to a body language expert, the testimony of the abuse from the brothers, a psychologist interpreting body language and tone, you know, all the things. So believe it or not, Jose's analysis and Kitty's really are the easy ones. If the abuse that Jose suffered from his own parents in Cuba really happened, and I feel it probably did, it would have gone the same way Jose explained it to Lyle. You see, children who are abused are much more likely to become adults who abuse. This is between 30 and 40% of people who are abused as children go on to become abusers themselves. The abused become the abusers for a number of reasons. Such patterns are familiar or may serve as a way to regain a sense of power. Such abuse may also be linked to feelings of inadequacy, insecurity, or grandiosity. People who experienced sexual abuse as children may struggle with confusing associations between love and abuse. They may also experience problems with anger, trust, control, and insecurity. Jose very much wanted power and control, and especially so over his sons and really his wife. Jose controlled everything every aspect of his family's lives, including food intake, and that includes forcing his children to fast and even raping them to show his dominance. With narcissistic personality disorder, we find that these people have an unreasonably high sense of their own importance. They need and seek too much attention and want people to admire them. People with this disorder may lack the ability to understand or care about the feelings of others, and we most assuredly see that in this man. People with narcissistic personality disorder may be generally unhappy and disappointed when they're not given the special favors or admiration that they believe they deserve. 
they may find their relationships troubled and unfulfilling, and other people may not enjoy being around them. They are often preoccupied with fantasies about success, power, brilliance, beauty, or the perfect mate. They may believe they are superior to others and can only spend time with or be understood by equally special people. They are critical of and look down on people they feel are not important. They expect special favors and expect other people to do what they want without questioning them. They take advantage of others to get what they want. They also have an inability or unwillingness to recognize the needs and feelings of others. I mean, we all know what narcissism is. And people with enough money, well, society is bad about turning a blind eye. As far as Kitty goes, it's really rather Psychology 101, at least to me. Her father abandoned her, her siblings and her mother, when she was a young girl, and sources said she was a depressed child. She had a cruel, abusive father and a despondent, battered mother. Kitty had few friends. Eventually, she cut off all contact with her father, whom she came to despise. It was noted that she was a beauty queen in her younger years. I, I only found that in one source, so don't put a lot of weight on that. This is a case of severe daddy issues, if I've ever heard one. Common behaviors include suspicious and excessively jealous, you know, constantly testing his love, overly needy for attention and validation, uncomfortable with other female friends of his, does not know how to effectively communicate problems so they show anger, they pout, cry, rant, storm off, etc. They often expect their man to create happiness for her and take care of her financially like a father typically does. Creates and enjoys drama, lacks self-confidence, has abandonment issues, and they often choose men who are emotionally distant or are completely unavailable. Again, we all have a sense of what daddy issues are. She wasn't angry at her husband for doing what he was doing to those boys, no matter what her level of awareness was. She had tantrums. She acted jealous and told her boys to their little faces all the way until they were grown that she despised them, never wanted them. She physically abused them. She said that they were distracting her husband and keeping him away from her. Though I've studied this all my life, college and on my own, I don't have that pesky PhD, but I believe her to be at least possibly histrionic. I was leaning borderline, but I didn't get the sense that she had this like explosive anger or self-harm. It's more like an explosive pity party. There might be a better fit, but again, that's just kind of my opinion. Now, as for Lyle, imagine the immense pressure for absolute perfection or else. Forcing a child to practice tennis for 40 plus hours a week while still in full-time school is absolutely insane. The sheer exhaustion, being pulled out of a pool by your hair, aggressively belittling and humiliation, controlling everything down to what you eat, how much you eat, and when you get to eat. Neglectful and abusive, physical abuse, wounds in the throat, you know, doctor's visits, mental abuse, being nearly strangled for eating a pastry, watching your peers go off to have pizza, but no, 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 not you. No, you lost, so you're a loser and you don't deserve that. Disregard your own little brother as, you know, he's not important, he's just the spare son. But when the sexual abuse started, 
His father told him that he was special, that he was his beloved firstborn son, guys, his namesake to continue the bloodline, the lineage. So noble was their relationship following the traditions of men throughout the ages who had sex with each other just before battle. How this, this is how men in his family showed love. He didn't mean to hurt him because he loved him. Do you hear this shit? Trying hard, walking the straight and narrow, doing everything in your power to please that parent that you know you'll never be good enough for, and all he got was disgust and vitriol. When his father was sexually assaulting him, his father was tender, told him he loved him. Okay? And then Jose stopped abusing Lyle at eight years old and began with Eric immediately after Eric was six. Same age he began with Lyle. I suspect that at least a small part of that was because Eric was more emotional or tender than Lyle. It would irritate Jose to no end if Eric cried as a small child. You know, he called him a sissy. And that's when he paid any real attention to Eric at all. More sports, more fasting, more food control, physical and mental abuse regularly humiliated. He called Eric a sissy his whole life and made sure he knew he wasn't as good as Lyle and he never would be. Barely. He was even barely relevant. He did the best he could and got the same disgust, the same vitriol. Only when he screamed in pain, he wasn't apologized to. He didn't get the love and tenderness and assurance that he didn't mean to hurt him. No, no, no. He told him that he had better not ever scream like that again, or he'd make sure he wouldn't be able to scream ever again. He was stuck and stabbed with needles and pins. It's the sadism for me, honestly. Where Lyle got some um, kind of level of accommodations with regards to the sexual abuse, Jose gave Eric no such favor. So the icing on the cake is that his own mother was also inspecting, quote unquote, his genitalia. Now, for this, I could nearly lean to thinking she was actually inspecting, knowing that Jose was abusing him, but I feel like Eric very much meant it was sexual in nature. I don't remember Lyle mentioning his mother touching him inappropriately, but I'm not going to rule that out. So once Lyle knew his father was abusing Eric in that manner, imagine the courage that it would take for him to confront his father and tell him to stop. He was 13 years old. His father was Jose Menendez, right? The terror in that decision. I remember that very vividly in my own childhood, just that first time you try to actually stand up for yourself. But Jose did back off. He agreed to stop, though we all know he didn't. And surely that might have given Lyle a boost of confidence or something. That tiny bit of what he felt might have been a victory. So Lyle starts acting out in his teens, and I don't think any of us are surprised at why he would be doing that. His girlfriends were never good enough, blah, blah, blah. Then once he's in college and his baby brother has graduated high school, turns out Pops had never stopped sexually assaulting his little brother. I unfortunately wasn't able to grow up with any of my siblings, but I hear about that sibling bond, right? And even if siblings aren't terribly crazy about each other, there seems to be this sort of sibling code, 
right? But either way, Eric had always idolized Lyle. Lyle had felt good about protecting his brother and to find out that the abuse had never stopped. These boys suffer from complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Many traumatic events like car accidents, natural disasters are of time limited duration. However, in some cases, people experience chronic trauma that continues or repeats for months or years at a time. It makes it CPTSD. The stress response includes anxiety, flashbacks, nightmares, avoiding situations, places, and other things related to the traumatic event, heightened emotional responses such as impulsivity or aggressiveness, feelings of worthlessness, shame, and guilt, problems controlling your emotions, distorted sense of self, unexplained stomach upset, memory lapses, flashbacks again, depersonalization and derealization, unexplained headaches, and so on. So the boys murdered their parents, right? No one's disputing that. They're not disputing that. And then they spent some of Jose's money. So here's what I hypothesize. I'm not saying that the parents deserved it. What I'm saying is, can you blame them? It doesn't take a lot of empathy to kind of see that this outcome was some of the very vengeance we all love in our movies. Lyle most likely worried about himself ever becoming a father, what with the disgusting family tradition and whatnot, right? No one thinks about that. Knowing Eric had endured the worst for 12 years, Listen, I know that if I found out someone was doing that to one of my people, smiling bright in my mugshot, babies. That's all I'm saying. But again, murdering their parents was not the correct answer. I It might have been entertaining to see how Jose fared in prison, though. <laughs> so I think Eric was just absolutely desperate for it to stop. Just period. It had to stop immediately. And though a lifetime of death threats and conditioning, they just snapped. Then yes, they went out and blew daddy's money. Sure, the murders had to have had at least a level of financial motive, but I can also see it as another big kind of middle finger fuck you to Jose because they had never really been even allowed to have their innocence, let alone a life of their own. As I get older, I'm able to see why being super duper rich is not great. It pays for silence and to look the other way. It corrupts people so easily. After you buy all the things and go to all the places, then what? And that's where we get into conspiracy theories, which is not this podcast. So do you agree with me? And if not, that's okay too. Tell me why. No one really truly knows but Lyle and Eric. The body language that has been studied to death, it's all on YouTube. They all agree that they were telling the truth. So again, I left out chunks of things that are not really relevant to what we talk about on this podcast. I tried to stay with more of what happened and what it does to the mind, right? So horrible. So as always, thank you so much for listening, guys, because I know you could be listening to anyone else. But you keep choosing me, and I will always appreciate that. I hope you enjoyed this one. I'm working on some more things in the background. There'll be something possibly like mommy issues, but not the same guys, obviously. Go get your merch. That shit's funny. 
But most of all, have a great day. Bye. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. <laughs>